Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. We're back with Jared Beck. Now, he's a practicing lawyer with Beck and Lee Trial Lawyers, and he also founded the Progressive Grassroots Super PAC Jam PAC. He's one of the attorneys involved. Now, we talked about this last time, but boy, has there ever been some updates. In a class action lawsuit against the Democratic National Committee, you can check out Jam PAC at jampac.us. That's J-A-M-P-A-C. His law firm is beckandlee.com and if you really want some scorching burn-off-your-eyebrows tweets, you can follow him on twitter.com forward slash Jared Beck. Jared, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, and thank you for having me, Stefan. It's really good to be with you again. So this lawsuit, now I've read through the court transcripts of what occurred recently. Good Lord, in a sane universe, this would all be front page news. So I wonder if you can just get people up to speed on the lawsuit as a whole, and then we can delve a little bit right. into what happened most recently. Yes. So very uh, quickly, in a nutshell, uh, this case was filed on behalf of uh, Bernie Sanders supporters and uh, members of the Democratic Party, alleging that the primary process was rigged in favor of Hillary Clinton. Uh, We filed this case last year in June uh, before the DNC uh, convention in Philadelphia. And the case has been pending since then in the federal court for the Southern District of Florida in Fort Lauderdale. And the hearing you're referring to, Stefan, occurred on April 25th when the court heard the uh, DNC and Debbie Wasserman Schultz second motion to dismiss the case before we even get a trial on the claims. Now, the basic argument, as far as I understand it, goes something like this. The DNC has in their charter that they're going to do free and fair, impartial elections. And there's this weird kind of flip, because normally you do a lawsuit and then you get discovery. But there was kind of like discovery that came out of Guccifer, right? There was kind of discovery because you got access to a lot of internal documentations that normally you wouldn't get access prior to a lawsuit. And that, I think, served the foundation for moving forward, hopefully, in a somewhat expedited manner. But they say, we're going to be fair, we're going to be impartial, we're going to be neutral. And then you get all of these memorandum and emails and other information that there are anything but. Now, it seems to me that's kind of like a confession on tape. It's, it, I'm not sure where the challenge is. And then seeing what their lawyer or lawyers, like there's quite a few, <laughs> were arguing, uh, just seemed, uh, it seemed kind of greasy to me, even by odd legal standards. Yes. Um, you know, you mentioned a very uh, important point, which is that we're in an unusual position in this lawsuit, given the quantity of evidence, which has already come into the public domain, not just through Guccifer, but WikiLeaks and other sources. So there's a wealth of information out there already, even before we've gotten to discovery, which shows uh, that the DNC, in fact, was rigging the primaries all along for Hillary Clinton. Now, the DNC came into court on April 25th, and they made arguments that are in the nature of legal arguments, trying to say, even if all this is true, um, it doesn't matter because you, the pla- being the plaintiffs and us as their attorneys, can't come to court and get any relief for these claims. And so what they're essentially saying, and they put forth a variety of arguments, some of which I, I think and, and others agree are quite preposterous, um, suggesting that and, and this is stated in open court by the DNC's counsel as an officer of the court. Um, He stated that the DNC could go into back rooms 
uh, smoke cigars like they did in the old days and uh, pick the candidates that way. And there would be no legal uh, consequences for that. That's what he said in open court. So that's one of the major arguments that they're hanging in their hat on to try to get this case kicked out of court. So this is this is the front page news that I, w- I was talking about, and I'm glad that we sort of zeroed in on one of the most appalling things that came out uh, in this particular transaction, is that yet they're openly saying, well, we as the Democrat Party have no obligation whatsoever to pursue free and fair elections for nominations. Uh, and that is a truly astounding thing to hear, because, because that's not what they say in their charter. And I think the argument right. is, if the Bernie Sanders supporters had known that Hillary was in the bag, why on earth would they have ever sent one thin dime into the DNC or in support of Bernie Sanders? Why would they ever have donated anything if it was in the bag uh, from, from the very beginning for Hillary? Exactly. Why, why would you even, um, even think about cutting a check to a candidate uh, when you already know that the outcome has been determined by the DNC? That's what the claim is. Um, and they've thrown up a whole bunch of legal arguments to say that uh, tough luck, uh, too bad it doesn't uh, matter how we select the candidates. Uh, the members of the Democratic Party, uh, the Bernie Sanders supporters have no recourse whatsoever. And I think that's a very, very dangerous argument. Uh, not only is it incorrect as a matter of law, but it really casts a, a dark shadow on uh, the nature of our political system, because if that's how the DNC thinks, I think, you know, we have a serious problem with democracy in this country. Well, and a sort of a, a carnival analogy came to my mind while I was reading this, um, Jared, which went something like this. You know, like you have those carnivals and they have those milk bottles and you're supposed to throw the rings over the milk bottle tops and then you get a prize. Mm-hmm. And the guy says, right. step right up, try your luck. You know, lots of people win and so on. And then it turns out when you measure it that the rings are actually smaller than the milk bottle tops and can't possibly fit over it. Now, that, of course, is wrong. You should get your money back and so on. But the defense of the Democrats uh, see, of the DNC seem to be something like, hey, man, it's free speech. I should be right. able to say to people, come and try your luck in my carnival game, even though they can't possibly win. It's free speech. Who are you to shut down my free political speech, you fascist? I mean, that seems kind of a strange <laughs> argument to me. It's a bizarre argument. And uh, you're exactly right. Uh, they're taking shelter in this very ironic and strange way behind the First Amendment and saying we as an organization have a right to free speech. We're engaged in political activities, and we are, at the end of the day, a private organization protected by the freedom of association, which is also in the First Amendment. And because of that, uh, it doesn't matter uh, if people uh, were defrauded out of money based on what we said. We get First Amendment immunity uh, for anything that we say and do with respect to the primaries. And that's just flat wrong. It's not supported by a shred of case law. They haven't cited a single case which even remotely stands for that proposition. In fact, uh, the cases that we've cited uh, from the Supreme Court uh, contradict that proposition substantially. So not only is it legally incorrect, but when you think about it from a common sense 
perspective, uh, it make it really makes no sense why the Democratic Party would want to make an argument like that in the public uh, domain. Because when you think about it, you know, what kind of uh, political party is this? Do, do you want to be a part of a political party that believes it has no obligation to its members to select or to run the primaries in a in a democratic way? It makes absolutely no sense. Free speech does not protect fraud. You know, so some guy can't go on the dark web and try and get get someone to kill someone and say, "Hey, man, it's free speech. I'm I'm allowed to type what I want." It's like it does not cover fraudulent uh, activities. That's not right. <laughs> it's not protected right. speech. It's very, very, very basic uh, law that we're talking about. That even uh, you know, this is this is stuff that a first year law student would understand, um, which is that, yes, the Constitution contains very important rights, such as the right to free speech, but we also have a common law legal tradition that predates the Constitution and includes such rights as the rights not to be defrauded. And so, uh, yes, I mean, you you are protected to uh, say certain things by the First Amendment, but there's never been a case that has said that protection extends to defrauding people. And so I really think this is a very, very weak argument that they've put forth. There is a moment of truly existential derangement for me in in sort of reviewing what's gone on, Jared. And it is a very Clinton-esque kind of a depends what the definition of is, is moment. Where it seems, and you know, I'm no lawyer, so correct me where I go astray, but it seems to me that the DNC, I'm sorry, let me keep a straight face. The DNC is making an argument which says, well, okay, maybe we took some money from people who thought that Bernie Sanders had a chance when it seems like he really didn't. However, we can't possibly give any restitution because there's no conceivable way to figure out who a Democrat is or not. Did I, <laughs> they actually, they, the DNC, they you know, the D, the Democrat, mm-hmm. it's in the actual party name, and they have no idea. World, like across right. America, no idea to figure out who a Democrat is. You know, I'm going to just yes. go out on a limb here and say that the people who donated to Bernie Sanders through the DNC or using the DNC's promises might be categorized Democrats. What am I missing here? I mean, what am well, I missing? You're, you're not missing anything. And, you know, my jaw was practically dropping open when I heard that argument in court made by the DNC's lawyers, which, you're, you know, you're not exaggerating it at all. He got up in front of the judge and said, uh, another reason that this case can't go forward, Your Honor, is because we have no there's there's no real thing as a Democrat. There's no such thing. So here's the uh, lawyer for the DNC, the leadership organization of the Democratic Party, which takes so much money uh, from people on the basis that they're Democrats, and this is what good Democrats do, coming into court and saying, actually, there's no such thing as a Democrat. I think it's absolutely bizarre. My favorite moment, and just, just by the by, um, maybe you could explain a little bit. My favorite moment was actually nothing to do with the law. But when the, the judge had to interrupt what you were saying, say, sorry to interrupt you, Jared, it's not your issue. But if people could stop cheering every single yeah. time you make a point, I'd be a little bit uh, more able to concentrate on the proceedings. So what was going on in the courtroom that the right. judge uh, made, made that comment? Well, this is the second hearing we've had in the case. And both hearings have had uh, extensive uh, crowds uh, coming into court wanting to watch the proceedings, which I think is great because one of the benefits of this process, even before uh, we get to a trial, which we're hoping we'll get to because we're hoping we'll get by this latest motion to dismiss, but one of the real benefits is that um, the proceedings are happening in public 
the transcripts are available. People are able to watch uh, what's going on. They're able to see the arguments. And so, and, and when the DNC's lawyer uh, gets up in court and says something as an officer of, a court, of the court, that's really very important because it's not the type of thing that you can easily back out of, um, such as we see politicians all the time. So I think what you're seeing at that point in the transcript is just uh, an indication of the ex extraordinary enthusiasm and interest that this uh, case has generated thus far, even though um, I think, as you mentioned at the top, we're in uh, the middle of a, a real mainstream media blackout. Uh, with respect to this case, um, but it hasn't stopped the public from being very, very engaged so far. Right, right. Now, the judge, as far as I understand it, does have a reputation of being against corruption, which may be positive. And I know reading judges can be a little bit like reading tea leaves, but there was something where the judge ma made a comment or asked a question of the DNC's defense. And he said, all right, let me ask the defense. We're going to go into the issue of standing now at this point. Let me ask counsel. If a person is fraudulently induced to donate to a charitable organization, does he have standing to sue the person who induced the donation? Now, the fact that he was asking that of the defense, and, and to me it just seemed like a whole bunch of convoluted stumblebum uh, nonsense that came out after that, but that does seem a fairly clear indication that the judge at least has some understanding that there is something very important going on in the courtroom. Yes, and I, I, I agree with your uh, take on that. And I would add that that particular question, I believe, uh, was motivated by uh, one of uh, the most important Supreme Court opinions on point, which is in our favor, and was issued in 2003, in which the Supreme Court unanimously held that a uh, charitable organization is not immune from state fraud claims simply by virtue of the fact that it's engaging in speech. And it was making, the charities were making the exact same argument that the DNC is making in this case, which is that, uh, a, you know, in their case, they were saying, well, we're a charitable organization, uh, we're engaged in First Amendment activities, uh, you know, this isn't commercial speech. So uh, the fraud claims shouldn't be allowed to proceed against us. And the Supreme Court rejected that in a unanimous decision. Right. Now, the argument from the DNC's lawyers seemed to be something along the lines of, OK, well, if I get a bunch of money and I, I run up a charity, I run a charity, I get a bunch of money and then I go and buy a Mercedes and I go and buy a condo somewhere in, in, some, in some place warm and sunny. Well, clearly that's fraud and blah, blah, blah. But the DNC is in no way uh, doing anything like that. But I think that people give money to the DNC with the idea that they're going to stand by their charter and do free, fair and impartial elections. So I don't right. think that's really an analogous situation. No, I, I, I well, I, I think the DNC's uh, argument, um, its premise is incorrect to begin with, but I totally uh, agree with what you're saying, uh, Stefan. Uh, I just don't uh, see. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the Supreme Court in our country, in in the United States, has ruled in Citizens United that uh, money is equivalent to speech, and that one of the ways uh, people uh, participate in the political process in the United States, whether they're corporations or individuals, is that they give money to political campaigns, but. 
people aren't going to give money to political campaigns if the candidates are running in rigged, um, meaningless uh, elections. I mean, that's just a very, very basic premise, and it goes to the heart of why people would give money to begin with. So uh, the representations and the, uh, the false statements that uh, are at the heart of this lawsuit by the DNC, which are found not only in their charter, but in multiple uh, statements that Debbie Wasserman Schultz and other DNC officials were making throughout the primaries, um, you know, these go to the heart of uh, what it means to live in a democracy and why people would participate uh, in politics by giving money. So I just think these are absolutely um, material uh, false representations and that we have standing to pursue our claims under the applicable case law precedent. Right. Right. I mean, if if you are in a casino with a game that head, heads you win and tails you lose, and it turns out that it's a double-tailed coin, well, that's not particularly right. free speech. Now, one thing I can't quite understand, and again, this is probably due to my long non-legal training, but it seems to me that when you're kind of caught dead to rights, like when you have a charter that says we do things freely and fairly, and then when you have revelations coming out through WikiLeaks and through hacks and so on, that you're not doing that, what what would be the cost to them for just saying, you know, we 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 kind of let this whole integrity thing get away from us a little bit. You know, we we welcome the course correction. You know, we're going to clean house. We're going to fix things up. We're going to do things right. Uh, we appreciate this. You know, it was a wake up call, slap to the face. Uh, we we wandered off the path. You know, however they would put it. It seems that they're doing more damage to themselves. I mean, objectively, they're doing more damage to themselves by holding on to this position and trying to shred what remains of their credibility by making statements in open court like, yeah, we've got no, we've got no real um, uh, goal of, of having free and fair elections. What about just copping up and, and settling? And I mean, what is their strategy, if you could guess it here, in, in taking this approach? I don't... I don't personally think they have a strategy. I think that we're looking at an organization that is in uh, free fall uh, for a variety of reasons, and this case is just one aspect of that. Um, I will, you know, this would be the equivalent uh, if a company like Apple came into court and said, you know, as a legal matter, we, uh, the board of directors of Apple, have no duty to our shareholders. Um, the next day, I think everybody would agree that the stock price would probably plummet into the ground because who would want to own shares in a company where the board of directors could do whatever they wanted with the assets of the company and, and they believe they have no legal accountability? Um, you know, it's the duty that they have to their shareholders, which is a legal duty that uh, keeps the uh, people from looting companies and running them into the ground. Well, you know, we have a situation in this case, which I think is analogous, except it's happening in the political realm as opposed to the market uh, or or economics. But uh, it seems to me that there's there's a real failure of leadership in the Democratic Party. I mean, that's all I can really conclude from this because it is seems to be such a bizarre strategy. It does. And I think one of the effects, Jared, of having the media cover 
for the Democrats for so long, like not bring this kind of stuff up, keep it buried and go after, I think, fairly inconsequential things on the Republican side, is that the Republicans have in a way been forced to have more integrity because they get so exposed and so harangued and harassed Mm. by the media. But the fact that the media keeps covering up for the Dems, I think, is one of the reasons why this rot has set in. I mean, the the whole point of the the, the media is to speak truth to power, to shine the light in dark places. But because they do the exact opposite with the Democrats, I think the rot might have gone too deep to self-correct. Yeah, uh, no, you're absolutely, that's a really great point. I think the media, um, you know, by which I would say, you know, I would I would use that to mean the mainstream media that has typically been uh, favorable to the Democratic Party has, you know, by its actions, it's been responsible for uh, a, a, the lack of accountability that, uh, the Democratic National Committee has now come into court and said that it believes, you know, it itself believes that it's accountable to no one. That's what it's telling uh, the court. And, you know, you have to ask, why does it have that attitude? And I think you're putting uh, your your finger on it, which is, well, one way is because uh, the media hasn't been holding uh, the Democratic Party accountable. And, uh, we're seeing, you know, I, I mentioned a media blackout of this case. Why is there a media blackout of this case? Why is no one talking about it? Why is, uh, well, I mean, you know, we, we know how, uh, uh, you know, Americans love to follow legal dramas. I mean, look at O.J. Simpson, look at Casey Anthony. Of course, you know, not a word in the mainstream media about this case, which I think is raising very, very important issues going to uh, the corruption in our political system. Well, to me, um, you know, it, I think it fits in with what you're what you're saying. Right. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the other stuff that's been floating around what's been going on. So you, your your firm hired a process server named Sean right. Lucas. And I've seen some fairly prominent journalists talking about Sean Lucas and Seth Rich in the same mm-hmm. breath. I wonder if you could tell people what is the story with Sean Lucas? Do you think it has any relationship to what might have happened to Seth Rich? Well, uh, I'll I'll just tell you the facts as I know them about Sean Lucas, and people can draw their own conclusions. Um, we hired, uh, when we first filed the suit back in June of last year, we hired a process-serving company in the D.C. area to effect service of process on the two defendants, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the DNC, uh, and the process server ended up being a young man by the name of uh, Sean Lucas. And uh, at the time, we thought it would be interesting and uh, uh, for us to live stream the actual service of process at DNC headquarters just to show people uh, who were interested in the lawsuit that you know the lawsuit was getting off the ground and being served. So we had uh, a, a camera... Uh, person uh, follow uh, Sean into the DNC headquarters and uh, video uh, him as he was making service of process. Now, what 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 happened after that is that the uh, DNC's lawyers made an appearance in the case, and their first motion to dismiss was based on the claim that uh, Sean Lucas had not served prop process correctly. And so our first, uh, you know, we had it on videotape uh, and we were basically in the process of 
uh, contact, reaching out to uh, Sean's uh, process firm in D.C. Uh, to get an affidavit from him to uh, counter uh, the DNC's uh, allegations in their motion. Uh, when we learned through social media that uh, he uh, had suddenly died. Um, and, uh, you know, this was, uh, um, you know, maybe, you know, I want to say 10 days after the DNC had filed their motion and we were in the process of preparing our response. And, you know, that was a very shocking uh, piece of news because, you know, Sean Lucas, um, you know, he was uh, seemed to be a very healthy man, young man in his uh, 20s. Um, you know, he seems, you know, you can watch him on the video. He's very robust. Uh, so, you know, very unexpected. Uh, and um, this, I believe this happened, uh, I want to say, maybe a couple weeks after the Seth Rich murder. And so there was already in the air, um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, um, speculation and wonderment about what had happened to this young uh, DNC staffer on the streets of D.C., um, supposedly murdered in a botched robbery, but they didn't take his wallet or his uh, uh, watch. And so um, eventually we got a, a, uh, um, um, a, a, an email from the D.C. police uh, basically indicating that, uh, and, and, and I should tell you that he had been found on the, on his bathroom floor, uh, by his girlfriend at like eight in the morning. That's what we eventually found out, uh, when we first learned that, uh, uh, Sean had, uh, passed away. Uh, later on, the DC police, um, uh, issued us an email, uh, concluding that the death had been accidental, uh, and it listed, uh, three different, uh, drugs that were uh, uh, detected in his body. Uh, how they ended up ruling his death accidental, there's no indication, and we haven't had any information on that. Hmm. Well, that's something sobering stuff, and it's something that people need to keep in mind when thinking about or dealing with these issues. So uh, two more quick questions. The first is in the transcript. Uh, the question was brought up, are political promises or promises made during a campaign speeches, the famous example being the elder George Bush's, uh, read my lips, no new taxes, I went ahead and raised taxes. You can't get sued for that. And it seemed like the DNC's lawyers were trying to sort of hide, in a sense, under that umbrella, that, you know, it's like right. a political campaign promise to say we're going to have free and fair yeah. elections. It's not something that can be enforced. Right, right. That's one of their big arguments is to try to say, uh, this is a uh, political squabble. Um, you know, our clients are just angry that their preferred candidate didn't win. And that's not the type of thing the court should get involved in. Um, you know, there is a number of responses to that. One is that this has nothing to do with politics anymore, uh, if it, a, at any level, and it never did. Um, you know, the, uh, I mean, the people in the class, you know, they gave money to the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, campaign, but I can uh, tell you that uh, many and many of them ended up uh, voting uh, uh, for uh, 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 Donald Trump. Um, you know, others, you know, didn't vote. Um, you know, so people of all different 
you know, sides of the political spectrum, so to speak. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think, you know, to even locate it in the Bernie Sanders campaign, I mean, obviously the Bernie Sanders campaign is get what originally gave rise to it because that's what motivated people to give the money in the first place. But, uh, you know, at this point in time, you know, this is not a, a political case at all. This is about uh, very core uh, principles uh, that apply uh, to, um, you know, I think, you know, applies to uh, any organization that's a major political party in this country, whether it's the DNC or the RNC. Um, I don't think, you know, I think everybody should be concerned about what's happening in this case. Right. Now, what are the next steps? You know, it sort of reminds me of an old Dickensian thing about about the, the, the slow grinding process of law. What are the next steps? And um, do you have any sense of how long it might take to resolve? Right. So um, the next steps will be dictated by what the written order uh, from the judge says. We don't have a written order yet. Uh, the judge said that, uh, you know, he said uh, very candidly that it was going to take him some time to uh, work through the legal issues, given uh, the magnitude, the magnitude and complexity of the issues at stake. Uh, if we get to the next phase, which means you know we get past the motion to dismiss, uh, then we'll be into discovery, which means that uh, not only will we be entitled to issue uh, subpoenas for uh, documents and records uh, beyond what's already leaked into. Uh, the public domain, but we'll be able to depose all of the material witnesses, including not just the congresswoman, but uh, all of the uh, key players and witnesses involved uh, with the events of the uh, DNC primary process. And uh, in terms of a total time frame, um, I mean, at this point, you know, it's anyone's guess. I mean, litigation can take years and years to resolve. It's just the way it works in, in uh, the U.S. litigation process. So, you know, and there's no scheduling order in place. So um, I can't uh, I can't uh, uh, give any estimate on that. Right. Well, you know, from a marketing standpoint, all you have to do is keep showing up to all of your hearings in a white Bronco. I'm sure that that will really help get people's attention. So uh, I really, really urge people, we'll, we'll put a link to the transcript below. Court transcripts, they don't sound exciting. This is gripping stuff. This is like fantastic Hollywood-grade script material. Uh, it's very interesting to see how the process works. I certainly appreciate that the work you're doing, shining the light on these dark places. Wanted to remind people, go to jampack.us. Beckandlee.com is uh, Jared's law firm. And again, scaldingly great Twitter stuff on twitter.com forward slash Jared Beck. Thanks, Jared. I'm sure we'll stay in contact as things go forward. I wish you the very best of luck in the next round, my friend. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed uh, speaking with you, Stefan.